All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the COVID-19 Task Force webinar today. And we're going to talk about um, handling the uh, epidemic in the congregate settings. As you know, um, we're all being advised to stay at home, minimize contact to other people in order to keep the virus contained. But um, we're going to talk about settings where this is just not possible because people are living um, in a congregate setting for various reasons. I have two expert speakers here like to introduce, or they're going to introduce themselves. It's going to be Dr. Alice Kim from um, Cleveland, Ohio, who's going to talk about the post-acute care setting. And I have Dr. Lee Norman, um, who's going to talk about uh, his experience in the uh, corrective settings and beyond. So welcome to our speakers. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kurtz. Um, so uh, my name is Alice Kim. I work at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, my clinical uh, job is actually infectious disease, and I have also a medical directorship in our medical operations uh, department where I've been helping with uh, lead the zone um, state efforts with COVID. And um, today's talk will just be on concentrating on the nursing facilities today. My name is Lee Norman. I'm a family practice physician, and uh, I uh, and the secretary of the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. So uh, my agency has public health uh, environments, so everything EPA related, Medicaid and the like. The, uh, uh, we, uh, as, a public, as a senior public health officer of the state, I've um, become quite involved with, of course, the uh, COVID-19 remediation efforts. And uh, I also have, a, I'm a colonel in the United States Army, so I've also worked with uh, Air Force and Army troops through the years, in, including troop movements. So thank you for the invitation today. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Sebastian Kurtz, just to finish my, I've introduced myself, I guess I'm a pulmonologist and care physician at the Mount Sinai uh, Respiratory Institute in New York. Um, so Alice, do you wanna start um, um, sharing your insights? Yes, I am going to bring up my screen and hopefully I do this correctly. All right, I, again, I want to thank you, Dr. Kurtz, for the introduction and for Chest for inviting me to my presentation today. The, my title is COVID-19 as a Catalyst for Change, and we're focusing on Ohio's congregate living um, COVID strategy. So um, preparing for this uh, topic really gave me some um, time to reflect back on the really the extraordinary year 2020 was. And really it all began as one of the co-leaders of our incident uh, management team over at the clinic where we had to be all hands on deck. As you know, we had to rapidly strategize, operationalize and execute procedures and policies and guidance, not only for the safety of our patients, but also of our caregivers and for our community. And even within the community, we had to really look and see how we were gonna partner with our um, previous rivals within the hospital community, as well as break down silos with our public health partners. And we really had to learn how to intersect paths and work together as the crisis was looming. So today, I'm um, really just focusing on the team of teams approach that is our culture here at the Cleveland Clinic and see how we uh, expanded that to our Ohio zone approach, how we then uh, link that into our congregate living strategy and how we are using geospatial mapping as we move forward. So early on in the pandemic, our governor, as well as our uh, medical director of Ohio Department of Health, Dr. Amy Acton, um, 
divided our 88 counties into three healthcare zones. Um, so the zones were put under leadership of um, a commander um, within a health system. So zone one was put under the leadership of my boss, Dr. Robert Wiley, who was the chief of medical operations under the Cleveland Clinic. And he had oversight of regions one, two, and five as noted in the diagram. Zone two, which was the middle two, uh, section of our state was then led by Ohio State University um, and zone three with the Dayton, Dayton hospitals. And really a way for us to connect um, uh, experts in the healthcare field to the governor's office and state um, officials to get um, the initiatives we needed to get done uh, quickly and fastly as the pandemic was going, um, going through our zones. Um, just to give you some perspective, we have about 190 acute care hospitals in Ohio additional 50 plus other facilities that do some acute care rehab um, and psychiatric um, uh, care, as well as 10 uh, children's hospitals. Since I'm focusing on the nursing home facilities, just gonna give you perspective that we have 960 nursing homes within our state. So the team of teams approach, we really approached it initially with meetings on the virtual platform. Um, these were uh, both on the zone level and on the local level led by Dr. Wiley or Dr. Uh, or me as his deputy commander and really having a multi-sectional sector approach um, to who uh, participated in the meetings. So on the zone level was really to get all the hospital leadership in the regions that we had oversight on, on one, two, and five. And those included not only the CMOs, COOs, as well as um, the directors of their emergency management agencies and directors within their hospital system. We also engaged the regional healthcare coordinators who had local emergency operations control um, oversight, as well as outreach to our public health partners and our nursing facilities. Um, from the state level, we had members from the Department of Health, um, the emergency medical agencies and National Guard, and other government officials from city and state. Um, we brought up topics and we still have these zone meetings three times a week um, to look at national and also state updates, to look at surge reports, outbreaks. And what was really great is we brought guidance and messaging to, um, to this group of um, attendees. And again, because of the rapidity of all the changes that we had with especially masking, PPE isolation and resource allocation, it was a great form for us to get that message through to a lot of people to then message back to their hospital systems. Um, every time we have a meeting, we have a, a situational report call from all the hospitals looking at their operational um, uh, activities on admissions for COVID and on non-COVID related um, uh, patients, the occupancy capacities and vent utilization, also have them report out on COVID, COVID positivity trends and also bring about action plans for their surges that um, again, need some assistance from our um, within the zone as well as uh, spread best practices within our regional um, uh, leadership. The local meetings um, were initially occurring daily, mirrored what we were doing on the zone, but also uh, but um, now go to have gone to once weekly, where we actually look at local updates and look at how we can all help with coordinating for throughput and surge and outbreak situations within our Cleveland area. Um, we did a lot of initiatives. This is just a, a slight uh, bearing of what we did, but um, again, broken up to what we needed on different levels of care. 
So on the acute care level was really initially seeing how we can all support each other with load balance and transfers and then escalate the, the need for higher level care to those um, uh, hospital systems that could um, take those, especially ECMO patients on. We also then had processes in, in order to look for resource allocations, not only for vents and PPEs, but for pharmaceutical therapeutics, and also looking how we can um, support each other with surge um, with a hotline that was uh, made available for anybody to call into if they needed any assistance. So um, simultaneously, we were looking at the congregate living care situations and seeing how we can support them. And that's what I'll focus on for the rest of this um, presentation. So with my background in uh, post-acute care for the last now the last decade, I really understood sort of the limitations that they had, not only on sort of the deficiency of sort of clinical support, but also material support. And really it became a very precarious situation then when COVID-19 came and it, they were, it was spreading fast. Um, and we really needed to focus on how we can support them um, with a safety net. And that was what my focus was. How can we support them with a net of um, not, shouldered by one hospital system or one public health system, but how do we do it partnering with everyone? Um, because again, it was going to be a big effort. And even though I, people who uh, like me who work in the post-acute knew about this vulnerability, I don't think on a national level, it really became known until the MMWR report um, that came out in um, early spring in March. And then it really did highlight um, how uh, the infection control practices really were uh, not up to speed and caused not only intra facility, but inter-facility spread of the infection and how these highly vulnerable patients um, because of their age and multiple comorbidities were really vulnerable um, to severe illness and from death from this infection. So this report really highlighted the high attack rates. They had up to two thirds of their residents um, get infected with dozens of their staff and even their visitors. 57% of their residents became hospitalized and I believe another 36% or so of their visitor, um, visitors and 23 of their patients died. So high case fatality rate for the residents was up to 27%. So um, again, what we learned from this was that the spread was because staff members were working um, while they were symptomatic, but also working in multiple facilities. And again, this is not uncommon in the post-acute care setting where these um, staff members are working at multiple facilities at the same, um, um, same time. So um, with the infection control and prevention practices, it was not, they were unfamiliar with the practices. And again, were hard to adhere to even the standard practices that they should have been um, uh, recommended to do. But on top of that, the, the other layer challenge was that they didn't even have the adequate PPE at that time. And remember early on, PPE, PPE supplies were um, down and that did not allow them to, again, do the, uh, the best practices for infection prevention and control. Um, early on, there was a delay in the recognition, recognition of these cases. And again, as we got to learn um, that elderly patients did have subtle changes in their behavior and mood, that would be sort of the first symptoms um, that could lead to COVID, uh, be recognized as COVID infection. And again, they didn't have that low index of suspicion early on. And again, the testing availability was not there early. It was limited and they could not confirm cases as they were coming through. So all those really contributed to um, the high case fatality and illness rate in those um, facilities. In addition, 
I think besides even being in a nursing facility or congregate setting is that, um, as we know, most of these patients in nursing facilities are older and have underlying medical conditions. So again, higher risk for severe illness. And even in Ohio, by that spring, we realized that 50, more than 50% of the deaths due to COVID were in the elderly. And then when you broke it down, even to the long-term um, nursing home population, 80, almost 80% of their deaths were related to COVID in that environment. So we really had to work proactively and see how we can um, stem that um, progression. So the CDC really worked on trying to continue and re reinforce um, infection prevention practices that we had already been implementing for uh, seasonal uh, viruses such as the flu. But on top of that was also giving uh, higher recommendations for visitation restrictions, um, restrictions of those that uh, personnel that really did not need to be in there. And also understanding how we can do social distancing uh, by canceling group uh, activities and communal dining and also implement active uh, screening, not only of the residents, but uh, of the healthcare providers um, that were giving um, care for these patients. And as you know, um, the, that group, uh, the nursing home facilities were the first to implement these really restrictive visitations that were ultimately in the uh, following weeks taken up by a lot of the acute care hospital systems. For us in Cleveland, again, it was really trying to make sure that um, uh, we gave the support that the, the facilities needed to keep their uh, patients on site and monitor them. Um, and it was really the realization that if they sent patients out, um, again, the, the, the infectious risk for that, but also we were very cognizant of um, the normal route for these patients was that they would be admitted to the hospital immediately for any change of condition. And we could not have that big surge um, coming into the hospital system. So how could we have them recognize um, early signs and symptoms, have them isolate them and order testing as needed. And what we, we found out is that we needed to help them cohort patients. They really did not understand the, um, how we were, the COVID positive patients really needed to be separated from those under investigation. And by giving them sort of the support on the clinical side, um, by advice and guidance was also giving them sort of support on the virtual platform. So we did have, um, virtual visits set up for uh, most of the facilities so that they can ask um, what they needed to do next and also standardize the criteria for these facilities um, to know how to assess and then ultimately transfer to the emergency department. And um, our criteria were then um, implemented on the state level as well. This all evolved into a formal strategy where we were looking at how we identify patients, um, uh, identify, I'm sorry, facilities, uh, link up communication, collaboration, standardize the care, and then centralize um, what we're doing with either data and action plans. So initially it was really to identify what the nursing facilities and congregate living situations were. Um, again, it wasn't just called a nursing facility. There were other different congregate living facilities that we will have to, that we definitely need to be aware of. Um, we got listing from OD, the Ohio Department of Health as well as our regional healthcare coordinators to understand where they were, who they were and how they functioned. Um, we linked them up to uh, the acute care hospitals with their networks and also brought in our community partners in public health, emergency management and our healthcare coordinators. All this resulted, I'm sorry, all this um, really was because uh, we all felt that this was the beginning of a really big storm, a, a wave of things that were going to come and ebb and tide as they go. And really, we needed to link them together so they had, they had an anchor of support. Um, 
So in zone one, as we look to identify um, these facilities, and again, I'm just gonna concentrate on the nursing facilities, we had over 450. Um, we had in zone one, 88 acute hospitals, 52 public health departments and three regional coordinators that were um, scattered within each of the three regions within our zone. We linked together the nursing facilities, um, the local hospitals, and then to regional hospitals. And we designated three regional hospitals within each region um, to be designated leads. Um, and then also identified the public health sector uh, sectors as well as emergency management agencies, and then um, identified the anchors of support for the zone leads um, with the uh, Cleveland Clinic leading, but also having assistance from the university hospitals and Metro Medical Center. So this all led us to be able to have um, a clinical and lab network of support. Um, again, that safety network that I um, had uh, discussed earlier. And it was really connecting all these nursing facilities to uh, hospital systems to provide not only clinical support, but also lab uh, testing support. So we did find facilities that didn't have any affiliated um, um, uh, affiliation with any hospital system. So we did assign them. Um, so nobody was left behind. Uh, we honored uh, existing relationships and then had the after extra layer support of the three zone designated hospitals, as I mentioned, as their anchors. The lab affiliations closely followed and mirrored the cl clinical affiliations, but we did honor existing lab contracts with commercial vendors or referrals. And again, had that extra layer of support with the a three zone designated hospitals in the labs and hospital systems to again, take over the overflow labs um, that could not be supported by their contracted labs. We had the local health departments as the gatekeeper. So they were to assess and um, the clinical and resource needs at the facility, do what they could, and then tell us what they needed from the regional and zone level to help support their efforts. Um, in addition, we wanted the nursing facilities to be proactive. So we, uh, in April, we uh, had them fill out, we launched a, a Congregate Living Online Red Cap survey, survey that they needed to fill out every week to every month. Um, and it was really for us to make sure that their contacts were, um, were updated. So they knew who, uh, we knew who they were, and then they knew who their affiliates were. Um, this was another venue for them to also uh, request uh, guidance um, for clinical and lab resources in a, a, a expedited fashion, as well as um, prevent redundancy. So really the central directory for all these nursing facilities um, was really a, a big foundational support as we moved forward. So with the standardization of the contacts, we also then standardized practice um, with guidance and management that included not only PPE, um, infection prevention, but also treatment and um, strike teams and testing. Um, this also led to us having a, a standardized process for resource requests and transfer uh, processes. So within the big major um, health systems, we all had our own playbooks that we uh, pushed out to our affiliates, but then also to the zone. Again, giving um, the nursing facilities uh, a way for them to have, an, uh, have something to look at for not only infection prevention, but also um, uh, for also outbreak control and management. And really this was sort of like a living document. It was updated very frequently. So they understood when the guidance had changed that they really needed to, to that they had a, a resource for, uh, for them at the facilities to use and to train their own staff. Regarding the hospital escalation process, again, we um, wanted to make sure that we had a streamlined process where uh, facilities were not scrambling to find out where their patients could go to appropriately and safely. So we advised the nursing facilities to, again, do lateral transfers within their local regional referral hospitals, 
first, um, if there was a need beyond the, the clinical need that could be supported within the region and needed escalation into the zone um, for the clinical need and or because bed capacity was an issue within the region, um, it went up to the zone. And what we did is we augmented the transfer services that were already and centers that were already established and put regional physician leads to help assist uh, the, the transfer centers and the hospital leaderships to uh, expedite transfers and again, make sure that the patients were getting to the right level of care at the right facilities um, at the right time. So this is just really a summarization of the progression of support and the standardized approach that we had for not only resources um, on the clinical, um, but on the physical needs. Again, we really wanted to support the congregate um, facilities on the nursing side um, and have them be proactive have them be able to identify cases and manage and treat them on site and really give them um, the resources to, again, inventory their needs first, um, which was not only PPE and testing, but also staffing, and that they need to explore their options on the external vendors and um, agencies first, and then alert us, uh, alert the, their local health departments as soon as an outbreak occurred or when their need was there. Um, that then escalated to the local health departments who identified and coordinated needs um, and if they could not uh, support that was to go to the local regional hospital partnerships who again, um, help facilitate and coordinate any of the support that was needed um, at, the, at the facility level. And then ultimately go to the zone where we helped out and worked closely with the Department of Health and Ohio Emergency Management Association uh, agencies for those unmet needs. I have to commend the Ohio Department of Health because early on they realized that the, the state needed to support all the zone efforts and what, we, uh, what they established was something called the CURT team. It's a congregate care unified response team. It was a multi-agency, uh, multi-discipline team that they um, formulated to coordinate um, congregate care uh, living, uh, not only technical support, educational support, but also working closely with the zone health, zone leads, health departments, and emergency management agencies. Um, they, uh, they supported and formed the bridge team, again, helping with not only PPE support, but as testing happened and uh, we were noticing more healthcare workers going out, they were also supporting staffing. So they had a volunteer base um, that they vetted, a licensee base that they also vetted, and they also had the Ohio National Guard support some of the facilities that had staffing issues and also helped evacuate uh, facilities that uh, where patient safety were at, um, at risk. With in hand in hand, they also uh, established the healthcare isolation centers or HCICs, which were existing nursing facilities that were uh, able to apply for additional financial support if they were able to take care of active or recovering COVID patients. So they needed not only to have the staffing support, uh, the resource support, but also um, sort of the facility layout that was conducive to taking care of these patients. And really the goals were three. It really gave them um, the facilities that applied for this, uh, a way for them to manage um, the, the, the patients on site for themselves. It also gave a venue for and facility for those in that level of care who were not able to support those patients to be able to transfer into an HCIC so the appropriate care could be done and also help the acute hospital systems. So instead of again, admitting patients um, who did not need that level of care into acute hospitals, they could go to these HCICs and then also help with the efficiency of throughput at the acute hospital level where we can we could transfer these patients at the time of discharge to these facilities that we knew could take care of these patients that were either actively, actively um, uh, with COVID or convalescing.
All this framework is really important as we understood that, um, again, the, the population in these facilities were not getting infected from symptomatic healthcare workers, but also from the asymptomatic carriage within the community. So by May, there was a directive from ODH that we needed to um, start doing facility staff testing. And again, having that infrastructure already in place really helped um, uh, with this coordinated effort. So again, I'm working with Ohio Department of Health and then having our own uh, clinical zone lab and um, uh, clinical affiliations were all very helpful and needed as we got the Ohio National Guard to start to swab as well as um, get the local health department to do the monitoring. So um, within a six to eight week period, we were able to test 900 facilities, 68,000 or more employees and 1,700 residents in a very coordinated, um, seamless fashion. Um, again, they took our lead from zone one and pushed out how we uh, coordinated logistically to the other two zones in the state. So we are still working on our uh, active efforts um, of COVID in our state. Again, we had three surges that mir have mirrored um, what happened nationally. And again, looking back, you know, it was really issues with um, PPE in the beginning, testing in the middle, and then really acute uh, acuity of uh, hospitalizations in the end of the year. Um, we are still having uh, long-term care facility cases, as you can see, with still a high mortality rate with um, about 50% of our cases um, of deaths still um, being represented in the long-term care facilities. So hopefully, um, hoping that with continued efforts, we can um, get through uh, this pandemic together with um, better um, numbers to show. The last thing I'm going to concentrate on is the centralization of um, uh, mostly with data and efforts, looking at how we did reporting and the directory and also looking how that helped solidify action plans and also then um, uh, touch base about the geospatial mapping that we're doing with our analytics department um, at the clinic and beyond. So um, as uh, most states and local health departments have had to do is uh, look at how uh, centralized monitoring and reporting of the cases really did help uh, identify outbreaks and then help with action planning. And that also uh, was augmented at, at, in our zone with how we had a directory um, of contacts and resource needs and allocations that all helped really coordinate intercept teams when outbreaks were actively occurring and also centralizing the, uh, the transfer process for patients who needed higher level of care as well as coordinated efforts with resource allocation and distribution. I have a shout out to our team in the business intelligence at the Cleveland Clinic Enterprise Analytics. They've done a huge effort with how um, with over 150 plus metrics that they've put in dashboards for us um, on the enterprise level to help us um, understand and um, again, move forward with COVID planning. The one thing that I'm going to uh, concentrate on is their uh, role in uh, regional surveillance where they have used um, uh, their data analytics to help us with cluster identifications of new COVID outbreaks. And then we can help focus interventions and contract tracing at those sites. So there has been a lot of predictive modeling. Um, it's beyond the scope of this presentation, um, uh, but again, geospatial mapping uh, has been done with collaboration, not only with our team, but with Case Western Reserve Curtis Lab and the University Hospitals of Cleveland. And it's really been an innovative um, way to, for the great minds in the Northeast Ohio to collaborate on COVID efforts, identify cases, um, so that there's awareness not only within our hospital system, but within our community for our public health partners so they can do, again, targeted intercepts um, and action plans efficiently and timely um, so we can control the outbreaks um, that are happening within our community.
So the first thing was really to look at how we uh, congregate housing locations where um, some of the uh, cases were happening, but it really helps us focus not only on that particular uh, congregate living, but also what is the activity around in that neighborhood. So again, we can um, focus uh, interventions. Um, the other thing that we can do is look at different variables for this one in particular in the right hand corner is looking at the higher vulnerable patients that are um, elderly and how many within that uh, area of an outbreak uh, were those so that again we can target interventions. Uh, we, they have been, been doing heat mapping also based on the zip codes, again, to help our public health partners understand where outbreaks are occurring and where they need to concentrate their public health efforts. And uh, the next layer is really looking at um, socioeconomically challenged areas, um, not only in the neighborhood, but in a, a regional surveillance area. So again, community efforts can be targeted to these most vulnerable areas and um, get resources to them quickly and efficiently. Um, this is my last slide. I am an eternal optimist. I know lots of things have bad have come out of COVID. The cases, the illnesses, and the deaths are, um, you know, almost too much hard to believe. But the one thing I do want to commend is really the partnerships that have evolved um, throughout our region and really everybody taking um, sort of the recognition and the obligation and the responsibility of healthcare systems that we really need to be sharing our resources, not only physical resources, but our knowledge resource to those um, beyond our uh, hospital system into the community. So again, that we can have, um, again, a foundation to help us move into a better hopeful future. And again, a lot of these efforts that uh, we um, implemented are now helping with our vaccine strategy in the state and in the region. So thank you. And that's my presentation. Thank you so much, Alice. It was great. And I think um, probably a lot of people who are watching this are just astonished how much, uh, how much planning and, and to, on, on a what's, you know, which kind of scale and uh, professional um, planning this occurs. Now, my first question in this regard, did you guys have a blueprint or did this all develop from scratch? Um, most of it developed from scratch. Um, so a lot of the, the implement, uh, the, the strategy was me and a, a few other members, again, trying to operationalize and um, get things executed as soon as possible. So I did have sort of the mentorship of my, uh, of Dr. Wiley, who has been in incident command and helped with the other outbreaks. Um, but essentially it was not to the scale or the longevity and the multiple crisis issues that uh, occurred um, throughout the year. So a, a lot of it was just trying to get people connected and understanding that we needed to all be on each other's shoulders and helping each other out from many different healthcare delivery sectors to get things done. And um, I think the Midwest was kind of hit a little bit second in line, right? I think the very first cases we saw on the West Coast and then um, the East Coast got really hit hard. Was this an opportunity for you guys to kind of see what may be coming and essentially get, you know, get your strategy together? 
I think we were all aware of what was happening, especially on the East Coast in New York City. And the one thing that Cleveland Clinic did, and probably some of your colleagues, uh, uh, now that I know that you trained here, was that we did send a group up there of healthcare providers from the, you know, um, nursing all the way up to physician level to help out with those situations. And they did report back to us about the conditions and what they um, what they saw. So we did implement some of those um, again, um, looking at best practices and how we could uh, make those even better practices on the enterprise um, and how we push that out into the region. That's great. Yes, we were very grateful for all the helping hand um, coming from Ohio and from all the other um, places from the United States. So yes, um, we here in New York, we really got hit hard and uh, we have seen a healthcare system essentially at the breaking point and beyond the breaking point. Um, do you feel like this was, and you know, what was there a point when you when you found you guys may be having the same problem that you may be able to handle it or did everything a big scheme work out for you guys that you're able to handle? Um, I, I think with Dr. Wiley's leadership and really making sure that everybody was part of the team, um, we really wanted to be the support. We wanted to share our resources. That was very visible and transparent early on. So we knew by predictive modeling that these surges were coming. Uh, they didn't come as bad as we thought. I mean, I think our regional pr uh, predictive models were about 10,000 admissions a day. Uh, thank goodness we never got there, but we were prepared to do it. And again, um, although we were leading the, the efforts because we have the resources at the clinic, not only with beds, but also with you know physical resources and pe personnel, it was really getting everybody else on board to contribute as well. And it, it's been incredible to see, again, the partnerships that have uh, happened. And again, nobody can do this on their own. We are all being affected. And uh, that was the one thing, I think the transparency of what we were trying to accomplish here was partnership and collaboration. And that's the only way um, that we knew that we were gonna get through this. Now, it sounds like you have a blueprint now for any future kind of epidemic that may be coming. Are there like um, serious efforts to kind of keep, to keep some of the core structures in place or certainly have the manual ready, let's say optimistically when this epidemic is gone, you know, be prepared for, for whatever may become the future? Yeah, I, I think this is a framework that we were thinking will be the foundation for everything coming forward. We know there's going to be a, probably another pandemic. Um, and, and again, um, having this infrastructure of network support is something that we need and we're still building it. Um, so there are, uh, again, vulnerable populations in the group homes, homeless shelters and stuff that we are still trying to outreach to. Um, and again, um, with the foundation we have, it, it was very helpful and is being helpful on how we're uh, launching vaccination efforts uh, currently too. So yeah, I hope this is the foundation. I hope we keep the partnerships um, because I, I think it, it will be necessary in, in the years to come. Great, thanks again. Um, Dr. Norman, um, do you want to share your experience in a, I think, in a slightly different setting? Um, sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's a dramatically different setting. The, um, by the way, I, one of my, in my background, I've been a chief medical officer for 26 years, half of that up at Swedish Health System in Seattle, Washington, and the other half at uh, University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City. So I've always been a hospital guy and, uh, and one of the things I was very concerned about early on, as per Dr. Kim, was to keeping from overrunning our hospitals also. Yes, care about people that are incarcerated, um, but um, 
but we also, because that's a very labor intensive thing when people leave uh, uh, correctional facilities and go to hospitals, it causes all sorts of social and other kinds of dynamics. Let me start off with a general discussion. I've got a few slides to share and then I'll, uh, we'll be able to answer questions. Uh, I'm, not a pre I'm not an expert on the prison system and corrections, but uh, by necessity, my department as the secretary of the Department of Health, and I'm also the state health officer, so I'm the senior health official in the state, um, much as we saw in nursing facilities, we saw some of the same explosion in terms of the number of cases that were occurring in, uh, in uh, correctional facilities. Correctional facilities are not a homogeneous group. We uh, have the Department of Corrections that is are run by the state, and then the county jails and retention centers are run by the county. We, counties, plural. We have 105 counties, each of which has its own uh, jail, and we don't have our command and control there, but we do in the state Department of Corrections. That doesn't include the federal penitentiaries like at Fort Leavenworth and, and so forth, and yet, the, th the thought that uh, offenders are placed in one facility for a long period of time is just not reality. I've learned that there's a tremendous amount of churn, people coming and going into work programs, coming and going from the community into a jail and then into a prison. And so to think that it's a, it's a stationary group of people that are confined to one area is a faulty way to think. And it, just look at the communities that house correctional facilities and you'll see that staff people come and go, offenders have work release programs, and call it what it is, prisoners are cheap labor. Great example, when the State Fair of Kansas, which is, you know, mom and apple pie and livestock shows and everything else, it's in the uh, fall, early fall in uh, Kansas, they were, uh, the State Fair Board was determined to have the state fair. And it wasn't until we said, that's fine, but you can not have uh, prisoners on work release programs at a buck 80 an hour or whatever it is that they are paid, then it, that's what killed the state fair. It didn't end up being the state fair board, uh, but it ended up being the, the economics of restricting prisoners to not be able to participate because of the infectious disease spread. And of course, by this time, it was into August and September uh, when we were deep into this pandemic. So I am uh, going to share a screen here. One of the things that I want to talk about is uh, how, do, how do we care for uh, prisoners for, or offenders in uh, congregate settings? And one of the things that we did um, was because nobody wants to, the, the public doesn't really want to devote resources to prisoners. So when we go back and look at, uh, as per Dr. Kim said it very well, the shortages in PPE, testing, case investigators, contact tracing, hospital capacity, staffing, antibodies, and vaccine, the, the general public, and it's kind of a dark side of this, of our general public, I think, really don't want to allocate those to offenders that are in prisons. And I've had it at legislative hearings, questions brought to me as straightforward as, so wait a minute, Dr. Norman, you are saying that you'd ra you, would, you would prioritize a child rapist ahead of a 68-year-old grandma or a 64-year-old grandma. And 
So we always have to come back to what we consider to be why and how did we get here. And as you can see, the, 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 the thing that has guided us, and again, this is, we just didn't make this up. Department of Homeland Security, CDC, and others said, well, number one, out, what's the likelihood of clinical outcomes being bad and death uh, for Dr. Kim? Uh, nursing facility, uh, long-term care are at very high risk of that. Offenders in prisons are too. Proximity. Our residents and staff in close approximation to each other. And residents, uh, yes, and offenders have bunk mates. They've got bunk beds uh, in their very small, some, you know, five feet by five feet cells, some of them. Type of contact, or is there continuous exposure to droplets, shared surfaces, and the like? And the answer, of course, is yes, they're in very close contact with each other. Contact duration, average of uh, in, interactions last more than 10 minutes. The people don't have anywhere to go in the in the prison situations as uh, in incarceration. They don't measure it in minutes. They oftentimes they'll measure it in months to years. And then finally, the challenges to implement protective measures. Space is indoors, confined, and not possible to control with whom workers will interact. I can assure you that prisons were not built with COVID-19 in mind because people are literally on top of each other. So you talk about an ideal situation for um, spread of a, a highly infectious disease, and this is what it is. I might add that the prison population is not a homogeneous population. It is very heterogeneous. You have everything from people with uh, lymphomas and leukemias and solid tumors, and um, uh, there's a lot of medical illnesses in, in the offender population. One of the first things I did was to uh, say, who in our agency knows anything about this? And uh, it, uh, fortunately, uh, I had a couple of people, one in particular, an epidemiologist who for 20 years has, uh, has worked with uh, tuberculosis, uh, hepatitis uh, C especially, and HIV in prison populations. And it wasn't that his, it was an experience in the illnesses specifically per se, but he knew prisons and how prisons work. Okay. So therefore, with those criteria I mentioned earlier, this is what we call congregate settings. And this is just from our website. We have that very well defined and prison population is one of them. So we're in the, we've made it through the first phase of our vaccine program. And now we've moved into the phase two, which is a very large group. It's about a third of the Kansas population. Uh, and included in phase two uh, is uh, prison population. And by the way, and people might not admit it over the dinner table at night, but people don't want to use vaccine on prison population. That's just not a popular thing to do. So I have this one and then one more slide, but it's, they're pretty dense and I just want to talk through it. What did we really learn through this? Because uh, we've been in incident command now for over a year, 54 weeks to be exact tomorrow. Um, and because uh, we saw this, you know, starting to, uh, uh, materialized and knew there's going to be a problem. So one of the things we did very early on uh, was to limit visitation and programs, uh, some of which were programs to leave that like work release programs and the like. Uh, very unpopular thing to do. Uh, matter of fact, I've, uh, I've been sued personally as my agency has too by various uh, offender rights ad advocacy groups and the like. But we put a clamp down very quickly on visitation and programming. We did the, uh, as one, and, and prisons are, uh, correctional facilities broadly 
are everything from 120-year-old facilities all the way through new sparkling facilities and all points between. So when I talk about number two, uh, applying anti-contagion measures, mass surface cleaning, et cetera, those are pretty uh, straightforward. Social distancing is very difficult. Some of the newer uh, correctional facilities do allow for social distancing and cohorting of patients, which will become important in a minute. Some uh, look like they're almost gulags, you know, from a distant past uh, in terms of uh, just the, the physical appearance and the functionality. Symptom screening of staff and anyone coming and going, even with no apparent cases in a facility. The, the COVID-19 doesn't crop up in the offender population as long as they're not coming and going from the facility. It comes from the staff. And staff are hard to control, as you can well imagine. So we put in symptom screening early and, uh, and then later on, uh, and I'll make this point in a minute, added in testing. Uh, well, now it's the next point, active surveillance of staff and offenders. We particularly focused initially because of the shortages on the testing, uh, we to do stat um, standard PCR testing on symptomatic offenders. What we basically put out as a rule very early on was anybody that's symptomatic needs to be tested with the same day turnaround on stat PCR testing. And eventually, even though antigen testing uh, isn't, uh, isn't as uh, desirable, if uh, we have also migrated to include regular Abbott uh, ID now screening of asymptomatic offenders as well. And we've picked up a lot of um, things early on. We've had a whole uh, units that we've tested that have, high, have been as high as 70 or 80% of the offenders population at one time on fairly large units. Uh, immediate quarantine and isolation of infected offenders and testing of all contacts at baseline and every seven days until the quarantine cohort are all negative after two weeks. That may sound easy to test and quarantine, but it is not. And it takes a lot of movement of uh, the incarcerated individuals from one prison to the next because of facility limitations. Uh, and uh, it's not like there's extra prisons that you can just pull online and, and say, good, there we go, that's a COVID prison. Uh, not quite so easy as that. Identified best isolation conditions in that KDOC is Kansas Department of Corrections, including ventilation and HVAC and moving infected offenders when appropriate. The, some of the uh, older prisons have essentially Oh, I spelled ventilation wrong. Uh, some of the older ones don't really have uh, ventilation systems. They have um, very, very rudimentary heating uh, systems. Some of the more modern ones have single uh, uh, prisoners or sing single incarcerated individual cells with each with its own HVAC. So we quickly found out that one of the prisons in Lansing, uh, Kansas, was the place where we really needed to move the uh, infected offenders uh, to keep them from spreading to others. But again, we would, when you move 60 to 80 patients at a, or uh, offenders at a time, it, that has its own series of challenges. Setting up COVID man management units uh, near, uh, at facilities that are near acute care hospitals. A COVID management unit is essentially a, a small prison, a small hospital unit within a prison and, uh, and have those near acute care hospitals. So it was, um, it was pre-positioning people that are at high risk of becoming ill uh, from that were known to be infected. 
establishing rapid direct admission criteria jointly with hospitals, including direct priority transport with EMS. One of the things that we didn't want to do for either the accepting hospital or for the correctional facility that was transferring the patient, we didn't want to have to go through a series of 99 questions uh, on either end, but just to say, uh, as per uh, number nine, are, have you met the criteria, the trigger criteria for patient transfer? And if the answer is yes, then it's okay. Send your patient. And then to have EMS already lined up to do so. So, you know, hospitals are, and I'll say it because I know I've been a chief medical officer in the hospital for a very long time. It's, it's a hassle when you have uh, prisoners in the hospital because you have a lot of extra police and whatnot. Um, and EMS is not too crazy about it either. So you have, it's better just to pre-wire everything to be done. <clears throat> and then finally, upon containment, regular staff surveillance, including symptom, asymptomatic staff, uh, the, the, we're typically able to snuff out in any particular correctional facility um, through the things I've talked about in one through nine above, but you can't blink. And uh, the reason is because it, it's gonna come in again. So we found early on that, that we had to continue to screen asymptomatic staff uh, and of course, to not allow symptomatic persons to come in. A few discussion points. <clears throat> this one has uh, led to a few scars on my back. Ethical considerations about prioritizing incarcerated persons over others. The, the general public doesn't like to do this. They would rather have prisoners be out of sight, out of mind. I did like to point out that prisoners are constitutionally defined as wards of the state, much like foster children are. And uh, so there's, it's not like it's without um, legal basis for the um, taking care of uh, incarcerated individuals. Another point that's <clears throat> interesting is the COVID uh, variants B117, the 1351, and now B1 uh, from Brazil. We are doing a lot of genomic surveillance uh, in the prisons. Uh, we have one prison right now. I'll find out, <clears throat> ideally, the results later today of one uh, correctional facility that had no, has had no cases for a few weeks, and then in just the blink of an eye, 36 hours, there's 50, 50 cases, and that's faster than what we normally see of spread. So we're a little concerned that the, one of these faster spreading variants might be coming. We, curiously, through our hundreds of thousands of uh, genomic surveillance testing we've done, we've not found those variants yet in the state of Kansas. I'm sure they're here. Another one that uh, is that a lot of states, Kansas being one, doesn't have enough correctional facilities for all those that are incarcerated, so they get farmed out to other states. And, uh, and yet other states, you're never sure how do they manage their folks. And yet when enough beds open up, we'll say, enough cell space opens up, they get sent back to the states. One of the things we've done is have gone to those states that have been uh, on a contract basis taking care of our offenders. We will set up testing at our expense so that we know that they're not going to bring them back. There was one uh, situation, I won't mention the state where they were housed, but of the, I'll say 150 offenders that were coming back in one cohort, all of them were infected. And it was uh, most asymptomatic. <clears throat> Department of Corrections, the state managed. We have pretty good control over the county jails uh, are not within the Department of Corrections. and. Uh, to that end, we've seen whole uh, sheriff's departments who were shut down because of COVID. 
because they took, especially out in western Kansas, it's kind of the wild west out there, uh, don't necessarily embody all the principles we talk about. Uh, so some of those, uh, not only did the jail, uh, the offenders get infected, but so did the police stations or, in this case, sheriff's office. Discussion. What do the prison staff do at their time off? Um, they bring in, they do things like everybody else and they bring in the virus. So we looked at every single staff person as somebody that was uh, possibly bringing the virus, of course, into the um, prisons. That's not unlike uh, nursing facilities and long-term care, I realize. We got to a, number 17, public safety considerations with staff shortages. We got to a point, and I saw, I, I saw this in hospitals as well with hospital staff, where there are so many people that were either infected or and isolated therefore or quarantined that it became, an, in, in hospitals, it becomes an issue of just how do you get the work done. But in prisons, it's a matter of public safety and how much can you, uh, uh, how much absenteeism can you have and still have a um, uh, safe environment for the staff and the inmates. And finally, you can't turn a blind eye to the unions. The correctional officers are pretty much all represented by a union, and they have an intense concern for staff safety and uh, their own pressures to bear. So in summary, uh, the correctional facilities and um, have their own nuances. It's tightly interwoven with the ethics of taking care of prisoners. And then, of course, the logistics are completely different than in a free-living uh, population of people. So with that, I will turn it back to you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I think that was very insightful um, about, um, yeah, a real problem, uh, which I think many people don't think too much about. And um, I think I wholeheartedly agreed that, you know, I think the state has an obligation towards these inmates um, to, to try to protect and, uh, and, and take care of their safety. Now, one question is, and that's probably different to um, the nursing homes, correction staff, um, um, workers in the correction facility, they're not medically trained. They don't have a background at all, um, especially at the beginning. Did you guys have problems really with people? Number one, they, they may just be completely uncomfortable going into that um, that potentially infectious environment or, you know, don't know how to use protective equipment. And um, and to start with, did they, how real were the concern that they didn't have actually the tools and equipment they needed to do that job safely? Yes, um, good question. Uh, you know, we do, there is a, in each correctional facility, there is a clinic that are medically sure. trained individuals. It's mostly by nurses or nurse practitioners or PAs with an overarching medical director someplace not necessarily on site. But I'll tell you, uh, a, lot in a, a lot of our uh, infected staff were the medical staff uh, and nursing staff mm -hmm. uh, was a real mm -hmm. hotbed. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, one, um, they were not necessarily uh, what I would consider on the cutting edge of acute care expertise uh, that were the ones caring for now these becoming complicated uh, patients. The other thing is, you know, a lot of the people that are incarcerated are not particularly cooperative or follow the same social norms that the rest of us do. So, and they have the right to refuse testing, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's nothing easy about it. And uh, 
it, it, there had to be, uh, we had to get a little bit into this before the offender population, a lot of them said, you know, I guess this is serious after all, isn't it? Because they'd see a few of their people ship out to go to hospitals and, and of course, some don't come back. Uh, we got better buy-in once there got to be more of a groundswell of that visible illness. It was a shame to see it come to that, but it, uh, the offender population eventually kind of became more likely to rally around it. But you're right, especially when you, we had shortages of everything, it was really a matter, call it what it is, rationing of those things uh, in, a, in a particular correctional facility. Fortunately, we've gotten beyond that now. I had a lot, as I mentioned, I'm a colonel in the Army in, in the Kansas National Guard. And uh, fortunately, I have access to uh, guard personnel that maybe others didn't. We had at one time 780 people, uh, airmen and Army soldiers, uh, many of whom we dispatched to the uh, correctional facilities because when you show up in fatigues in the combat attire, then people suddenly become more cooperative. So that was ended up being a, uh, a pivotal in helping us to get the correctional uh, facilities under control. Mm -hmm. And um, I think now, fortunately, we're looking like we are getting around further with vaccine distribution. So and you mentioned a challenge to, to kind of advocate for getting enough vaccines for the inmates and, of course, the staff. Um, how is it being taken up by the staff and the inmates? Or are there any concerns about, well, this is uh, experimental drugs and, um, of course, it's a vulnerable population reminiscing um, that? But we haven't started uh, immunizing the offender population yet. Okay. But we have the staff and particularly the medical personnel. The medical personnel were in phase one along with hospital and other kinds of medical personnel. Uh, the staff have been readily accepting it, readily meaning as uh, Dr. Kim and you and I were talking about before we started, around maybe 65%, 70% acceptance rate. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't uh, gotten enough vaccine into the state yet to start administering to the offender population. We'll see. And um, another question is you mentioned the, the challenge with the asymptomatic carrier and um, yeah, being being in a hospital, it was exactly right what you mentioned, you know, even if you were considered in contact at times, as long as you don't have symptoms, you, you were obliged to show up for work. Now, could this setting be used to look to get some more epidemiological insight about what is actually the carrier rate and what the infective risk of these asymptomatic carriers? Could we learn something from that setting and are there resources to do that? Yes and no. Yes, we can learn something and are the resources not yet. We've taken copious notes and one of these days we'll surface on the other end and hopefully understand. But I'll tell you what, uh, it's in a, in a wing of, let's say, 120 uh, incarcerated individuals um, who are basically looking okay, and you then do deep nasopharyngeal PCRs and end up with 75% positivity rate, you say, oh my gosh, <laughs> how did we get here? And it was all because there was one person that became infected. So um, the, the, the contagiousness of this in that kind of setting, and I described the physical setting, is it just boggles the mind how how highly infectious. And again, we haven't found any of these new, newly infe highly infectious ones. The right. old ones have not. 
Right. Um, come, just focus on a couple of questions we got um, to the beginning of the webinar. There was one question um, about a problem that a large fraction of a skilled nursing facility um, staff is hesitant to get the vaccine. How do you get around that? I'm not sure if either of you has more personal experience with workers and uh, is that an issue that has come up actually? Um, just wondering if you have any. Dr. Yeah. Jim, you wanna take a whack at that? Sure, I'll whack it out. <laughs> 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 no, I, I think um, it became clear. Um, there was a lot of cultural um, issues, uh, racial sort of hesitancy um that we we knew uh within the community and within the nation that we were going to have to deal with so a lot of the things was really trying to message um to them um there are local efforts through the public health departments but also at the facility level to get them to understand from either nursing leadership um, their peers, mostly um, physicians, um, that it, it is a safe thing to do. And even with that messaging, it was a slow uptake at first. But as we've gotten the first round of vaccines out and the second doses out, and they are seeing that people are actually doing okay with it, and there's more advocacy um, within you know the, the healthcare community and abroad, um, that they uh, the uptake has really swung high. I mean, it was normal initially, you know, lows in the 20s to 40s as it was uh, rolling out 40%, and now it's up to you know. 80% plus. So I think we'll get there. Um, but uh, a, a lot of uh, messaging and reinforcement ha has been key. Hmm. And you understanding know. that it's not only protecting them, it's also protecting their patients. So I, I think they have that in their heart too, that th it's not only for them, it's for, for the people that they're taking care of. And really, uh, Dr. Kurz, I would say the same thing is true on the, on the correctional facility side. Yeah, yeah. Um, another question came up, and it, I think it, it does concern staff safety. Um, the question is, are any standards how people can safely have a break in terms of, uh, you know, to minimize airborne uh, transmission? I know, of course, in the hospital that came up, that only a limited amount of people are allowed in a break room. There has to be um, adequate ventilation and things like that. Um, is this a concern that can also be addressed, let's say, in correction facilities or um, comes back to staff safety? Yeah, the, yeah, it's, it is a scheduling, uh, I won't say nightmare, but consideration that uh, to have uh, people um, uh, take their breaks at a different time to alter their schedules. It, uh, a lot of work programs in the prisons uh, have to be changed. And again, some of the, the folks, a lot of the correctional, uh, the incarcerated individuals are not necessarily ones who like to be messed with. And it, so we see it, it, it's a little bit of a negotiation process. Um, but uh, there was, I would say, fair cooperation uh, with, with that. Uh, but it's limited by the facilities so often uh, in, a, in the ability to do that. It's not like you have too many choices when you're in a talking about a correctional facility. Got it. All right. So I think we are on the hour. So thank you very much for a very insightful um, conversation presentation. Again, I think it's a topic where we learn a lot, which we didn't know about before, um, what there is about to learn. And I, I just hope for, for all of us that 
we continue to learn from these experiences and all these planning that's being laid out and hopefully have it in place and make use for, for, uh, for the future. All right, thank you very much, both of you, and thanks to the audience. Thank, thank you. you.